Today's scripture reading is from Acts 27, verse 13 to 32, which can be found on page 1109 in your Red Pew Bibles. So, Acts 27, starting at verse 13. When the gentle south wind began to blow, they thought they had obtained what they wanted, so they weighed an, an anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and we were driven along. As we passed the lee of a small island called Cauda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. When the men had hoisted it aboard, they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Feeling that they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirdis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor star appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete when you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost, only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God, whose I am and whom I serve, stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as, it, as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea when about midnight the sailors sensed that they were approaching land. They took surroundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it fall away. This is the word of the Lord. In the, in the tradition, the writer Luke, who is the author of uh, both the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, is identified as the physician. But if you, uh, if you follow that, that passage and sections before it and after it uh, that Rachel uh, just read for us, um, Wow, it seems like Luke is a pretty talented expert on um, the uh, ancient uh, nautical things. Uh, 
as someone said, Luke maybe really should have been called Luke the Mariner. Um, this, this passage is chucked full with uh, language and including technical language about um, all things ships and sailing in that ancient world and in that middle uh, or that eastern Mediterranean um, way. So Luke, it appears, is on board. Luke's traveling with the Apostle Paul, who is now become the main character for us in the second part of the book of Acts. We're exploring this to see the formation of the early church, the expansion of the early church, to explore all the levels and dynamics that are going on in the development of that early Christian movement in order to get something for ourselves and the way understand, recognize, reflect on how God the Holy Spirit is working in our time, uh, in and through us. It's a story of a shipwreck. The Apostle Paul is at the center of it. There's almost 300 people on this ship in the eastern Mediterranean called the Adriatic. Technically, the Adriatic doesn't stretch all the way there, but in the ancient world, they had a habit for you uh, geography buffs of claiming the whole eastern part of the Mediterranean as the Adriatic. There's two legs to this journey, and there are only a few Christians. There are only a few early Christ followers in this group. Paul is being transported along with prisoners to Rome in order to stand trial, and this is the story of his journey. If you think about it, boat stories and nautical disasters and shipwrecks actually have a pretty prominent place on our kind of life and literary landscape, or seascape, should I say. Maybe going back to Noah's Ark and to the exploits and explorations of the Vikings, the sea battles of the European imperial powers, the exploits of Lord Nelson, the Titanic, the Lusitania, the HMS Hood sunk by German submarines and the Bismarck battleship, even close to home for local Ontario history, um, the Great Lakes and the dozens and dozens and dozens of shipwrecks that took place, um, the most famous made notable by our Canadian treasure folk singer, uh, Gordon Lightfoot, the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald in Lake Superior. It goes on, Robinson, Robinson Crusoe, the Swiss family Robinson. Recently, Canada apologized for rejecting a whole boatload, a ship of Jews who were escaping persecution in Europe, and we turned them away from the East Coast. They went to other places, were also turned away, and eventually went back to Europe where they ended their lives in tragedy called the Holocaust. One of the early stories in my own upbringing was the trauma of the Vietnamese boat people, many of whom made their way finally to North America, but hundreds of whom lost their lives in trying to escape 
the political and military mess of Vietnam. And still, there are stories of submarine rescues and ferry disasters, and even a couple of years ago, a really terrible disaster around a cruise ship um, that was sailing in this part of the world where our story is set. The sea is a kind of a mystery in the ancient world. The sea is pictured in most places in ancient literature and including biblical literature as the great unknown netherworld, a deep and dark place beyond human understanding and beyond human control. Shipwrecks are frequent, and at this time in history, when sailing is becoming a thing, and with the expansion of the economy and the politics of the Roman, the Roman Empire, boats are becoming more and more prominent, and shipwrecks are increasing. But there's a gentle reminder strung throughout Scripture that actually is there to remind us that the sea should not be for us as God's people, the great intimidator that it had become. From the story of Noah's Ark to the parting of the Red Sea to the profound expression throughout the Psalms of God's sovereignty over the seas and the waves who actually worship Him, to the centering of Jesus in his profound authority over the storm. And the story of Jonah, and it goes on and on and on as the Christian message wants to make the point that even the sea, this great mystery, this great mega enemy, does not have power over God's people. Nevertheless, we get the story of a shipwreck. And in the middle of this shipwreck, we have a faithful follower of Jesus, a prisoner of Rome, and a disciple of Jesus, the Apostle Paul, who finds himself in the middle of this impending disaster. The center of the story is Paul's insertion of himself in the story of the disaster. And throughout the verses, there is a pretty clear description of how Paul has stepped into the story and stepped into the, the crisis in order to make a contribution, in order to do something good, in order to help those people who find them, their lives threatened by this uncontrollable storm. This started as a little bit of a sea breeze, as Luke writes, but that turned into a raging hurricane. And most of us have lived life long enough to know that little sea breezes can turn into raging hurricanes. So the sea, in a sense, represents this picture of life with its ebbs and flows, with 
its currents, with its gentle breezes and beautiful beaches, and with its treacherous shorelines and storms. And so Luke, in this genius way of Holy Scripture, invites us with the Apostle Paul and with Luke and with the others to place ourselves in the middle of the ship of life, as it were, remembering that in the long history of the Christian tradition, the church was often pictured as the ship, the pulpit getting its original imagery in the development of the faith as the crow's nest of the ship, and certain sections of the church, most notably in the Scandinavian, and I'm a proud Scandinavian uh, person, in the, in the Scandinavian churches, the imagery of ship and sail and pulpit prominent in, ship design, in church design. From time to time, you'll come across churches designed as boats and ships. This idea that we are, as God's people, sailing through the waters of life. But nevertheless, the end game here so far is that it's a storm that dominates the story. I can't stress enough that in this time in history, sailing is a treacherous thing even for pleasure boats and sailboats and cruise ships today. But in this time of history, sailing and sailors were very, very vulnerable to the power of storms because nautical engineering was still in its development. One of the questions in looking at the Apostle Paul is, does he have a strategy for this? Is there, is there like a repeatable strategy that we can just kind of lift out of Paul's involvement and that we could then flip it and turn it for ourselves to use it with other people? I think, I think maybe the answer reflectively is yes and no. There does seem to be an approach that Paul takes, but whether it is the exact repeatable approach for every crisis, for every storm, for every situation, that, that, that could be debatable, but nevertheless, it is what it is, and Paul employs an approach to this situation. First of all, these people are frightened out of their minds. They were in the story of Jonah. They were when Jesus was sleeping in the boat. They were frightened out of their minds. Swimming was not a big thing. Drowning was a big thing. And Paul steps into this crisis, and he speaks into this crisis a word of courage. It's a word of faith. And when the words that he says are, do not be afraid. Now that line should echo should reverberate, should shake somewhere in your mind and heart as we realize that that is a line that is at the very defining center of the experience of people who trust in God revealed through Jesus Christ and empowered by the Holy Spirit. That was the main line that Jesus used after his resurrection when he went to the disciples in the house of fear. Do not be afraid. Interestingly enough, 
our culture is predict is 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 kind of described and being coming to find increasingly by people who are culture experts, journalists, academics, people who pay attention to these things, defining our era as the culture of fear. People making all kinds of decisions because subtly, subtly, there is the tremor of fear pervasive in our culture. The way people think about their money, the way people think about their health, the way people think about their children, the way people think about the future, the way people think about their generosity and their relationships and their participation is often connected and shaped, unfortunately, by a latent kind of fearfulness the uncertain, the unknown, the unpredictable. Even in our time right now that we're living through, the institutions that many of us, maybe falsely, have come to trust, even those very institutions are coming under scrutiny, are being challenged, and being threatened. I know lawyers who think that the Supreme Court both the United States and Canada should be thrown out, that it actually has become something different than what it was originally meant to be, and that it really shouldn't be a thing anymore. Now, there's a few lawyers in the, in the crowd that want to offend you in particular, but we're all Canadians, and some people are saying the Supreme Court really doesn't, isn't as important as it used to be. Because they're working more on policy than they're working on law. I'm not an expert on these things. I'm just listening to people's critics criticisms. The Apostle Paul speaks his word of courage into the group, and it gives us, I think, some hope and some content and maybe a sense of our own role as we participate with our neighbors, as we participate with people that we love who are in trouble or in crisis, as we participate on with colleagues, as we participate in organizational life, as we participate on teams, there's just something about the power of being able to say, do not be afraid. Whatever we do, whatever we decide, whatever we plan, we cannot make our decisions based on fear. And the thing is, Oftentimes, what we do as Christians is we often argue that that line because we have a special insight to who God is. But what's beautiful in this passage with the Apostle Paul is Paul tells the story of how he gained this confidence, that an angel of God spoke to him. But the beautiful thing is, and we forget this, because we emphasize that God is on our side all the time. God's for us. Who can be against us? But in this, in this, this description that Paul receives from the angel of the Lord, the Lord reminds Paul that God is a gracious God and that his grace extends to everybody on the boat, to everybody on the team, to everybody in the neighborhood. 
There's something about keeping God as a kind of a tribal, personal, protective God that sometimes, if we think and reflect on it, inhibits us from speaking more broadly because we're worried that that's, well, that's just our perspective on who God is. And yet for Paul, who is this public intellectual or becoming a public intellectual before our eyes in the rolling out of the book of Acts, he has this amazing capacity to speak publicly in a way that's rooted in his personal experience of God and yet is able to include the well-being of other people. Not everybody can do that. Not everybody feels confident to do that. Not everybody feels trained to do that. But goodness knows that the field and the harvest are ripe. The culture is waiting. People are ready for someone across the table, for someone in the room, for someone in the group to stand up and say, we cannot decide our strategy based on fear because love has to overcome fear in some way, shape, or form. It's not happening, is what Paul says. And it's not happening because God has got our backs in this story and in this ship. And just for a second, it's a ship filled with prisoners. It's not a ship filled with insider religious people. There's staff as sailors, there's a couple of politicians, and most people are criminals and prisoners, accused of something. And so when Paul talks about, describes that God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you, just can you imagine having the courage to stand up in your team in your neighborhood, in your class, in your group, and saying, it's my, just my opinion, but God loves you all. Whether or not they receive that, I don't think that's the point. God loves you all, and we are not going down with the ship. The second thing that Paul does is he says something that seems to be very, very obvious, and yet in this story it becomes monumental. He describes an episode where this is a disaster becoming even worse, and the people who know it the most are the professionals on board, the sailors. Luke describes this very intricate thing that they try to do to save the ship and to anchor it and to wrap it around so it doesn't blow apart at the seams, all of these technical nautical strategies for keeping a boat from combusting with the pressure and with the load and with the water and with the possibility of crashing into a beach or a shoal or a cliff. And the sailors, as Luke describes it, they come up with a strategy. They throw a lifeboat over, and they are going to abandon ship. They say that the staff is not is supposed to go down with the ship. Not happening here in the hearts of the sailors. They don't have a big stake in a ship full of prisoners and people that they don't know or don't love very much. 
obviously the leadership's a little weak. And so they decide to abandon it. And Paul says to the leader, these people cannot leave us. The survival of the whole group depends on everybody staying together. Everybody doing their part. These people have a precious, precious contribution, never mind a skilled contribution to make to our group. And we can never be the same without them. What Paul's exercising is not only some practical insight, but a deep communal insight that we have an opportunity of sharing as God's people, and that is that we need everybody. The whole description of the ship as the Christian church is dependent on everybody. The whole theology of gifts, that each person is given a gift by the Holy Spirit, and that through the exercise of those unique gifts, that's how the community stays healthy and hangs together and goes forward. Everybody's got a place. Everybody's got a part. A couple of years ago, I got invited to speak to a group of professionals in downtown in the city off of Bay Street, and um, the host of the group said to me, I, I, I really would like you to talk about loneliness in the professional life. And one of the things that I realized as I was preparing to be with that group, a group that I didn't know except for a couple of individuals in the group, is this realization that in their profession, isolation, individualism, and also the resulting loneliness was part of their professional culture. And so I encouraged them to look for friends. Encourage them to work together as groups. I encourage them to come overcome their professionalization and the, the, the pedagogy of their professional lives in order to reach out and connect, whether it was in the office and in the work, or even just in their general broader work culture. Everybody needs a group. There's something sparkling and compelling and convincing this word that we need a community. And in fact, the gospel of Jesus Christ is rooted with that insight that God is building a community. That's why we pass the peace on a weekly basis. It's a physical way of reminding us that God is drawing us together, that God is making a family. And it doesn't matter if you've been here for 50 years or if, you just, if you've only been here for 50 minutes. We recognize that God is drawing people, and the posture of the church is, welcome, we need you. And then maybe a little quiet, more quietly, you need us. Paul has this sense of communality, and in our opportunity as God's people in the world in the midst of crisis, the word stick together becomes a divine word. The word, we need you. The word, stay and help out. 
the way the word that says this situation might be going sideways according to your insight and your reflection, but there is no chance we can make this through together unless everybody pitches in. One of the most underrated people in the modern world is our Canadian friend and brother, John Vanier, who has built a ministry and a mission with the conviction that healthy spiritual community and any healthy human community requires the intelligence and the insight and the participation of the intellectually and physically disabled. The way John Vanier provocatively describes human community is he flips it upside down by saying that communities are disabled themselves who do not have the presence of people who on the surface can't make much of a difference. Now, if that isn't the gospel, right out of our own Canadian backyard by a guy who did a PhD about a few kilometers from here on the other side of the University of Toronto at St. Mike's, that in order to be the community that God calls us to be, we need the experts, we need the vulnerable. God seems to be telling us in Canada and in our church, we need every race, we need every person, we need every perspective. We need to respect our children, like Ashley reminded us, and to love our elderly and to listen to them. Do not be afraid. Hang in there. And this third one is kind of funny. Have something to eat. You're hungry. Now, this is the piece in the story that I think saves us from a kind of a super spirituality. This spares us from sort of living in the theological clouds with the theological elite, with us on our own biblical high horses, understanding how God works and what we ought to be doing and what our friends and colleagues and the deeper sinners amongst us ought to be doing. Paul says, you haven't eaten for a long time? Let's have some food. Praise over the food serves the food, and what Luke writes is that they ate and they were encouraged. The food encouraged them. And so all along the way, do not be afraid. Hang in there. Let's get a coffee. You can start to see that God shares in an incarnational way, in a very human way, rooted in who God is, a design for living and working with people in crisis. I don't have time to apply this to the operating waiting room. I don't have time to apply this to the hospice. I don't have time to apply this to marital counseling. I don't have time to apply this to any unemployment and the crisis of work, 
I don't have time to do that today, but only to say the Scriptures come alive for us, and they become a distinct possibility for how we live and work and befriend others as God's people because they give us something worth saying that's helpful, that's doable, and that ultimately points us to the goodness and the grace of God. I am going to say this is going to push us beyond cliches. This is going to push us beyond the answers that we have learned in kindergarten to give in every situation, regardless of the situation. Father Henry Nouwen, the Catholic spiritual writer, in his book on Jesus and leadership says that at the center of Jesus' leadership is theological reflection. You have to go a little bit deeper. You have to go a little bit broader. You have to take the truths of God and allow them to grow in you. You have to test them. You have to put them up against the reality of life. And you have to, to recognize and see where the truth is going to percolate. In some sense, he's pushing us all to become more deeply committed to who we are as God's disciples. The thing about this passage is this isn't just intended for apostles. It's intended for sailors and for criminals and for politicians and for everybody. What were we saying about 9-11 as Christians? What were we saying about the SARS crisis that struck the world and started in our own city, just actually a couple of blocks from my home? What were we saying uniquely about the meltdown in 2008? What were we saying about our addiction to money and our fear because we had come to trust in a world economy that looked like it was being built on a house of cards, and some people knew it, but most of us didn't. What are we saying today about shepherding creation, that great big ship of God's creation, the earth, and our challenge to be sailors and stewards of that earth? What are we saying to our friends who are many concerned, even more than most many Christians, about conservation, about preservation, about renewal. What are we saying uniquely? What are we contributing to those conversations? What are we saying about our obsession with money and the unsustainability of work expectations that seem to be just growing and growing and growing, regardless of what collar you wear, color collar you wear when you go to work? What are we saying about our relationships with the visitor and the foreigner, and the refugee. We've been placed in the middle of those questions as God's people. We are not immune from them. The Apostle Paul was not immune from the shipwreck. He was right in the middle of the ship, struggling to save his own life, struggling to hear a word from God. And we are not immune for any of these massive or profoundly personal issues that are coming our way. The beautiful thing about the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus, we're told, comes right into the center of the trouble. 
He comes rightly understood. Jesus comes into the politics of his time, and it was a messy, violent politics. It was a multicultural world with, we find out from the growing nautical reality that's taking place in the Mediterranean, it was a growing, booming economic world. As some scholars have said, that early time in Mediterranean history was very, very much like our contemporary time, with multi-ethnicity, with political confusion, with the threat of violence, with the growth of technology, with religious confusion. But Jesus, God's Son, was called to live and to die by participating in the midst of that mess of his time. As disciples of Jesus, who are called to carry our cross daily, we are no different. So let's allow the Holy Spirit of the living God to make theologians of all of us not to tell people what to think and what to do, but to be sources of hope as we point to a God who loves us and everybody else who doesn't happen to be here this morning. Do not be afraid, because there is a God who loves you and has all of our best in his mind, in his heart, and in his hand. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.